Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, you may plus, press star then zero on your touch tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Treatment Update on Mantle Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is really uh, just a wonderful program. It's a program that we actually um, would really like to offer more often throughout the year. It's an important topic. Um, and today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbV company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and we want to thank them for their support. Now, today's program is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, as well as lymphoma organizations, and I really want to thank them and other blood cancer organizations as well. I want to thank all of them for helping to spread the word about the program. And because of all of that activity... Um, and all of us spreading the word about the program. Um, we have on the program today over 205 participants, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also today have some international participants from Canada, India, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And so we thank you for your choosing to spend the next hour with us to learn more about the treatment update on mantle cell lymphoma. And it's my pleasure. We have wonderful speakers today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Brad Call. Dr. Call is Professor of Medicine, Director of Lymphoma Program, Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Call is going to present on mantle cell lymphoma overview in the context of COVID-19, treatment options for newly diagnosed, and the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Call. Thank you, Carolyn, um, and it's a pleasure to be speaking with you all today. So I'm going to talk mostly about frontline treatment considerations. So this would be for patients who have mantle cell lymphoma that's not had any previous treatment. Usually these patients are fairly recently diagnosed. I'll just say a word about establishing the diagnosis. Patients come to medical attention in a variety of ways with mantle cell lymphoma. Some patients will have symptoms. They might have had uh, fevers or night sweats or weight loss or pain. Um, they might have had um, uh, growing lymph nodes that they first noticed that got them to medical attention. Other people's mantle cell lymphoma might have just been detected incidentally on routine blood work or a routine evaluation that was being done for other reasons. So mantle cell lymphoma patients come to us with a variety of different presentations. Establishing the diagnosis is not terribly difficult nowadays. It takes a biopsy of an enlarged lymph node or involved bone marrow, but we have fancy tests that can be done that are quite reliable at establishing the diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma. And then when we, when we see a patient for the first time with a new diagnosis of mantle cell lymphoma, uh, one of the first things we, we wish to establish is is the extent of the disease, and that's a function of what we call a staging evaluation. So patients will need blood work and a physical exam, and they'll need some sort of imaging. Usually a PET scan is the best imaging in mantle cell lymphoma, and that will help establish the disease burden in a patient, really how much lymphoma are we dealing with. And then we're very interested in determining if the patient has symptoms from the lymphoma or not. And occasionally we will meet patients who have a very low disease burden and have no symptoms. The disease was just found completely incidentally, stumbled upon, so to speak. And so for patients like that, it's occasionally appropriate to just start out on a strategy of observation. Patients do not necessarily need to start on treatment immediately if they're in that category. So for maybe 10 or 15% of our patients, that's how we'll initiate their management is just close observation. However, the majority of patients come in and they have symptoms or they have a higher disease burden and we will recommend starting treatment 
right away. And so a common strategy uh, when we're initiating treatment and trying to decide what sort of treatment is most appropriate is to consider whether the, the patient is appropriate for an intensive type treatment or a less intensive type treatment. And let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> intensive treatments usually involve multi-agent chemotherapy given at moderately high doses and often include a component of a stem cell transplant, uh, stem cell transplantation at the end of the treatment, often using the patient's own stem cells. That's called an autologous stem cell transplant. And that whole procedure is moderately difficult, and it's really best suited for younger mantle cell patients, and I'll say patients typically under the age of 65 or maybe 70. Often when patients are older than that, then the treatment starts to become a little too difficult um, in that situation. And for the older mantle cell patients, we'll often recommend a less intensive strategy. And I'll talk about some of those options. But for patients who we deem appropriate for the, the more intensive treatment strategies, there's a number of um, different regimens we might recommend. I won't go into all the details, but there's a regimen called Hyper-CVAD that some centers prefer to use. There's a regimen called Nordic, which some centers like to use. And there are a variety of spin-off chemotherapy regimens, but they often involve uh, an element of, of, of adding in a drug called cytarabine at moderately high doses, and that seems to produce the best outcomes if a patient can tolerate that type of a regimen. And then once the patient is in remission, we often recommend this procedure called an autologous stem cell transplant consolidation, and that is designed to put them into an even deeper remission. And we like deep remissions because they tend to last longer. And so even though this is a difficult 6 to 12 months for patients going through these intensive type treatment strategies, we believe that it will pay off in the long run because most patients, or at least many patients, can, can achieve very long-lasting remissions that last for years and years and years. And the side effects of the treatment will wear off and the patients will start to feel like their old selves again. And, and hopefully enjoy, enjoy many, many, many years uh, without needing any treatment. A more recent development has been to add um, something called maintenance rituximab after the stem cell transplant. That's typically a pretty easy treatment for the patients to tolerate. They don't have a lot of toxicity or side effects during the maintenance rituximab. Now, for our older patients who we think just aren't appropriate for these more intense strategies or intensive strategies, a commonly used treatment approach would be to use a two-drug regimen of a drug called bendamustine, which is a chemotherapy drug combined with the monoclonal antibody rituximab. That's probably the most commonly used regimen for older patients in the United States. You do get a little variation from center to center or as you go around the world. There are some countries that prefer to use the R-CHOP regimen, which is a common lymphoma regimen. There's a, another regimen called VR-CAP, which some centers will use. And there's another option called lenalidomide rituximab, which also is used sometimes in frontline mantle cell. All of these regimens are not as intense, not as difficult to get through as the um, regimens I had mentioned earlier that are reserved more for the younger patients. But these um, less intense regimens are also highly effective. They will put the, the vast majority of patients into remission, uh, and those remissions typically last for several years. The remissions tend to not last quite as long as compared to using the intensive strategy, so that's the downside to the less intense treatment strategies. But the patients certainly tolerate these less intense regimens better. Their quality of life is better as they're going through these treatments. And we do have um, increasing options for patients whose mantle cell has come back, and that will be covered later in our presentation today. Now, one of the things I was asked to talk about is to um, address the issue of how we're managing patients in these frontline settings in the in the COVID-19 era, and the, the impact has been 
modest. I wouldn't say it's been tremendous. And the, re the reason is most of these patients, they, they need their treatment. They need their mantle cell treatment. And we just have to proceed as we would ordinarily have planned, even though we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. We certainly counsel our patients quite a bit on um, being extra careful, social distancing measures, and all the things that are recommended to, to, to minimize an individual person's risk of acquiring COVID-19 because we certainly worry about our patients acquiring COVID-19 at a time when their immune system is not very strong, and that's definitely something we wish to avoid. We um, occasionally will defer treatments. I've had a couple of patients who who didn't absolutely positively need to start their treatment right away, and we were we pushed their pay, their treatment off for a couple of months until we got a better sense of how bad the pandemic was going to be in our region, and then are making appropriate adjustments now that we have a better handle on things, now that we're comfortable that our healthcare system is not going going to be overwhelmed, um, and I feel like we're we're getting back towards a, a more normal uh, routine with regards to treating our mantle cell patients in the frontline setting. And then there are some important studies underway looking at integration of novel agents into frontline treatment strategies. A lot of those trials are enrolling patients as we speak or have completed enrollment but we're still awaiting results and these are things we can cover a little later in the presentation or in the questions if, if people have um, interest in, in those topics. Um, so I think with that, I'll probably stop at this point, and um, I'll be happy to take um, questions during the Q&A portion and the latter half of the call. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kyle. That was really extraordinary, excellent presentation, and really, really set the whole context for the program and, uh, and um, about mental cell treatment. And uh, so thank you. And, and there will be questions for you, I know, during the Q&A, so thank you. And... Our next speaker is Dr. Ajay Gopal, and Dr. Gopal is Professor of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington, Member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Clinical Research Director and Associate Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Gopal will be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, clinical trial updates, how clinical trials increase your, tr your treatment options, and emerging treatment approaches. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gopal. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today uh, to your audience uh, and as well with my uh, colleagues, Drs. Uh, Call and Haberman. So um, as Dr. Call mentioned, uh, certainly the goal is uh, for the initial treatment is to have a long remission with the least amount of side effects, and uh, many people do have very long remissions. Um, but unfortunately, in many situations, uh, the mantle cell lymphoma does return. Um, and I think as uh, Dr. Call was alluding to, we now have many treatment options for this situation. And I'm first going to just kind of name a, a list of, um, go through a, a variety of uh, different treatment options for relapsed uh, refractory recurrent mantle cell lymphoma, lymphoma that comes back. Um, but first keeping in mind that once someone knows that they have a history of mantle cell lymphoma, many times the recurrences are identified at a, an earlier uh, stage or earlier situation where there's less mantle cell lymphoma uh, present, lower disease burden. And even in this situation, there can be a period of time where you can observe people. So if people are not that symptomatic, if the mantle cell lymphoma is not growing very quickly, uh, if it's been a long period of time since the last prior therapy, um, Patients can be uh, often observed for a short period of time or sometimes even longer uh, if there's a very indolent type of relapse. So I think it's important to always keep this in mind that we generally treat when there is an indication for treatment. If they're, uh, as part of the workup at this point, then similar to a diagnosis, a PET scan is often performed uh, to evaluate the uh, disease burden, uh, look at labs, make sure there's no uh, impending complication or consequence uh, of the uh, mantle cell lymphoma, and then sit down and have a, a discussion uh, with your uh, 
lymphoma doctor about what the appropriate next steps are. And I think it becomes a almost a more complicated situation in the setting of recurrent disease uh, because we have many choices and now we have additional factors to consider uh, in terms of what choice to make. And some of these could in include, uh, as I mentioned, uh, how much lymphoma is present and how long has it been uh, since the last therapy and what was the last therapy. So, for example, patients who have had a very long remission after something that was a, used chemotherapy primarily or maybe a transplant, but maybe a 10-plus-year remission, which can happen sometimes, many of these patients can get long remissions again measured in years uh, by giving more additional chemotherapy plus rituximab. So, for example, bendamustine rituximab could be used uh, if somebody had a long remission after other types of chemotherapy. Um, for those that have had shorter remissions, uh, oftentimes we look at other agents that are not typical chemotherapy type approaches, and some of the uh, approved drugs in this situation include uh, an older drug called bortezomib that is approved. Uh, there is a drug that Dr. Call mentioned called lenalidomide, which is a pill-type uh, therapy that's also uh, approved for uh, recurrent mantle cell lymphoma. Um, but most of us are using the type of drug called a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and this is a very interesting class of drugs that really targets some of the abnormal, as I described to patients, uh, circuitry in the cancerous B cell. Uh, it's a switch that's always turned on, and these drugs, which are pills, uh, can go and turn off that constant on switch uh, within the mantle cell lymphoma cells. Um, and these, these drugs have really changed our approach to uh, recurrent mantle cell lymphoma and, um, as was alluded to, uh, are being evaluated as part of the initial treatment for mantle cell lymphoma. So there are currently three available uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors called BTK inhibitors. One is ibrutinib, another one is acalabrutinib, and a third one is xanabrutinib. And um, these are all... Uh, probably more similar than they are different, um, yeah, but uh, it provides different options. So if one uh, is uh, less well tolerated, one can try another one. Uh, for example, some are twice a day, some are once a day, um, but does provide different options. Uh, another uh, agent which is not formally FDA approved for mantle cell lymphoma but is often utilized uh, is another pill uh, called venetoclax and this also can be quite effective uh, in the treatment of mantle cell lymphoma um, and actually can be given in combination with a Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitor and I think there's a question that's already come in we might address that uh, and during the question and answer session about that uh, combination. So there are a variety of options, and I, I, when I sit down with a patient, I usually think of what's our strategy here, and I'm sure my colleagues do too, uh, based on all the information we have about the lymphoma, how it's behaved, what treatment once received, and what, how, what the patient's wishes are, and what any other medical conditions that they, they might have to try to tailor the best approach. So um, another thing I'm going to talk about this morning uh, is uh, clinical trials, and I uh, I think the main uh, advantage as in for an individual patient to consider clinical trials, it allows you to have access to these agents before they are uh, FDA approved. So everything that I mentioned, lenalidomide, ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, xanabrutinib, venetoclax, all these uh, drugs were available for years on clinical trial uh, before they were uh, widely available for FDA approval. So it gives an opportunity uh, for an individual to have access to these things, um, typically through a large um, uh, lymphoma center. Um, and of course, societally, clinical trials are how we make advances and how we improve the lives of patients suffering from mantle cell lymphoma. So I think this is an important uh, consideration. Um, there's also a minor potential advantage is that typically the uh, medications on a clinical trial are provided for free. Uh, not all trials, but most trials, the uh, study drug, the investigational agent is provided by the trial, so there can be some benefit there. Um, and then uh, finally, I would just want to talk about 
some of the emerging modalities, and these are really things that are only currently available in clinical trial, but we hope they're going to be uh, more widely available as these uh, uh, trials mature and the data gets uh, presented to the uh, Food and Drug Administration. So um, one approach uh, is something called CAR T-cells, and um, I think many of you may be familiar with this, but this is a way of engineering one's immune cells, the T-cells, taking them out of the body, engineering them in a way that they go back and uh, are in designed to go and attack uh, cancerous B cells. Um, and these are put back in uh, in an infusion, uh, kind of like a blood transfusion, um, after getting some chemotherapy that suppresses the immune system and allows these cells to take. And these cells can then seek out and destroy uh, any uh, uh, lymphoma cells that they come in contact with. And um, this has the potential, at least the early data would suggest that maybe we are uh, actually get, getting some cures here and even in patients that have very refractory disease, um, this disease can be eradicated. Now, it's important to recognize that this sounds easy, but it is a big deal. Uh, patients can also get quite sick. It usually requires treatment at a specialized center, and it's kind of like a stem cell transplant if, you're, if people are more familiar with that. Um, so it may not be the right thing for everybody, um, but we are all very excited about this option uh, uh, to be uh, more uh, broadly available, hopefully within the next year or so. Kind of a light version of that is something called a bispecific antibody, and this is uh, a, an immune protein, kind of like rituximab, but instead of uh, being designed to stick exclusively on uh, B cells and cancerous B cells, it kind of has two ends to it, and one part will stick on the cancer cell, and the other part will stick on the immune cell or the T cell, and it puts these in close proximity to each other so that the immune cells uh, can attack the uh, cancerous B cells. And this is a way, kind of an off-the-shelf way of infusing something that would stimulate the immune system to attack the uh, mantle cell lymphoma. So that's something that's also very promising and uh, in clinical trials um, and we hope that eventually these will be uh, successful and approved for mantle cell lymphoma. So um, there are a lot of other, many other clinical trials and emerging modalities. I just touched on a couple of the most uh, unique and promising ones uh, for B cell lymphomas and mantle cell lymphoma. Um, I'd be happy to talk about uh, other in the uh, question and answer session. So with that, I will uh, conclude and uh, turn uh, things back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was really outstanding and uh, really wonderful and really uh, giving people a lot of information options uh, about treatment and, and, and what's new on the horizon. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you. They are coming in. You're right, more. Um, people seem to know about the online ability to uh, um, put questions in. So we'll be giving you more information, all the audience, about that shortly. Um, however, our next speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Dr. Haberman will be addressing managing treatment side effects and quality of life concerns, discussion with your healthcare team, telehealth, telemedicine appointments, and social distancing to decrease your risk of exposure to COVID-19, and practical guidelines for preparing for telehealth medicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's an honor to be with you, Dr. Brad Call and Dr. Ajay Gopal, and thank all of you for joining us. I will first address quality of life. There's not a lot in the literature about this in lymphoma, and let me share a couple of observations. We've been interested in quality of life through our molecular epidemiology research program in a paper that we published in December of 2018. We had followed 701 patients who filled out forms reporting quality of life. We reported that this was really important. This was a prospective study looking at physical activity, social family metrics, emotional assessment, and functional well-being. And interestingly, quality of life at the time of initial presentation was associated with improved overall survival and event-free survival in aggressive lymphomas, and it outperformed the performance score. So the better the quality of life at the beginning of the journey, the better for you. The second thing we observed in this, though, was that functional well-being, physical well-being, and overall quality of life 
was lower after initiating chemotherapy and the regimens that we've described so far that can happen and there are side effects. So what can you do? Again, in our molecular epidemiology research cohort on 3,060 patients, we followed 1,371 who had a third follow-up and baseline health uh, form filled out. And at three years, there was a significant improvement in overall survival, lymphoma-specific survival, and event-free survival in all histology studied, which included mantle cell lymphoma, who met or exceeded the national recommended standards for age and sex with regard to physical activity recommendations, pre-diagnosis, and in patients who had a change that is an increase in their physical activity. So exercise improves quality of life. What to do in this time period is difficult internationally, but walking, jogging, bicycle riding, working out with exercises at home on videos, isometrics, and so forth are all possible. To address the management of side effects, there are two fundamental issues in this story, and that is chemotherapy and the COVID-19 pandemic. We've all been glued to many different sources, uh, getting daily updates and things change dramatically day by day. But these two things are extremely in inextricably linked. And to complicate this, some of these can be associated with relapse of disease. So when you look at the presentations for COVID-19, what are they? Number one is fever. Number two, cough coughing up blood, shortness of breath, chest pain, confusion, passing out, diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, altered sense of taste and smell, just what chemotherapy drugs can do. Doesn't this all look like chemotherapy? In certain ways it does. Many patients don't experience significant symptoms with either this or the virus. But interestingly, the vast majority of these issues can be managed at home. These are very similar side effects to chemotherapy, and it's important to really be very careful and be very careful in communication with your healthcare team. And a temperature of 100.5 degrees Fahrenheit really requires you more than ever to contact people. With regard to general comments about toxicities, they're very dependent upon the types of chemotherapy or types of other therapies. So different chemotherapies, immunotherapy, that is antibodies, radiation therapy, transplantation, CAR T-cell therapy, and even complementary and alternative medicine approaches all come into play. The most common side effects with the drugs that we've talked about so far include lowered blood counts, fatigue, gastrointestinal symptoms, skin changes, peripheral neuropathy. How do you manage these? The blood counts, it's intermittent blood checks, and even in the midst of this time period, it's, it's imperative that they be obtained and with different regimens, and these are regimen-dependent. Bleeding, using a soft toothbrush, avoiding tampons, avoid enemas, avoid suppositories or rectal thermometers. Infections, again, if you don't feel well, check your temperature, and then they need to be managed as appropriate. Neutropenia good hand washing, washing fruits and vegetables, not eating undercooked meat or raw fish, and the potential use of colony stimulating factors all come into play. Nausea and vomiting, we're doing so much better than when I started back in 1982, and compliance with those, and be willing to use those, they can really be incredibly helpful. Fatigue, it's both rest and exercise. Exercise really helps fatigue. With regard to specific drugs, steroids cause insomnia and irritability, and frankly, I think the complication of this particular drug is, is, is complicated. Monoclonal antibodies, you get treated with Benadryl, Tylenol, steroids, those things all help. Ibrutinib and venetoclax, avoid grapefruit, Seville oranges, or marmalade, as these can increase the drug levels of those two particular drugs. Ibrutinib, irregular heartbeat and bleeding are the two key side effects to ibrutinib and calibrutinib, and you need to be very keyed into those and then to contact.
diarrhea, pneumonia, or skin rashes. Venetoclax tumor lysis syndrome is one of the main toxicities which that is taken care of in the way you initially get treated at most institutions. And peripheral neuropathy, a drug like gabapentin, can potentially be helpful. So what can you do at this point in time, and, and frankly, what should we all be doing? Contrary to other health problems that we've all watched, uh, not coming to the physician's office or other health care facilities is really the norm, not not the exception. So management by tele and video conferencing as much as possible is a present practice. The primary health care strategy is not antibiotics, is not antiviral agents, but it's to keep human beings from direct contact. And as we all recognize, we really weren't made to do that. And it is also counterintuitive to our health care systems worldwide. Some patients with the virus are going to get sick. Some don't. It's projected that a high percent of patients will recover, but that social distancing is really important in prolonging the time for herd immunity to develop and potentially for other treatments to be developed. The whole problem with this whole thing is, and the three of us spend much of our days talking with patients and, and, and their family members, is that Who's at risk? It's patients over the age of 60, immunocompromised patients, diabetes, mellitus, hypertension, reactive airway disease, obesity, heart disease, and patients with other malignancies on treatment, all predisposed to a more higher risk outcome uh, situation. And this really does represent the lymphoma population when you think about those characteristics. So what can we do? Number one, social distancing. Six feet must be embraced. The virus can literally travel at 13 feet in some different studies. Stay at home and isolate as much as you can. If you're on chemotherapy, it means that other family members need to be the ones going to the grocery store, need to go pick up things at the hardware store and so forth. Check your temperature twice a day and essentially behave like you have the virus in effect. Don't misuse antibiotics. They can only cause further problems. And masks, I think, are really important personally. And mask and monitor for the illness has become the mantra. Lastly, what about telehealth and telemedicine appointments? And I'm just going to say five very brief things. Number one, it's important for all of us to realize how both patients and physicians are somewhat uncomfortable seeing themselves on screen and some, sometimes uncomfortable when we're not clicking the right things. And so to be patient and is important. Secondly, it's imperative to be on time. Ten minutes late and the consult gets canceled at many institutions. It's one of the only times that, that I know I have to be absolutely on time and there can be no interruptions. Thirdly, be yourself. When I see patients, the first thing I want to see is what they look like the first 30 to 60 seconds. I can then really tell whether you're sick or not in many ways. Fourth, have your questions ready and either written or typed out. Uh, there aren't the follow-up visits the next day as occur at some referral practices and so forth, so this is really important. Lastly, in lymphoma, th this isn't an indefinite plan for all follow-up as physical examination and laboratory evaluations are essential. And then when you come in you, for chemotherapy and so forth, you're, you're coming into the institution all, also. So in conclusion, this problem is not going to go away in the upcoming weeks. We are here to keep you safe and think of your long-term outcome. In my career, which started in 1982, I've never had the discussions and the plans that I've had before about considering different treatment options, considering doing less testing, and so forth. But in the end, patients with potentially curable disease or incredibly treatable diseases, such as mantle cell lymphoma, should be treated with the best possible therapeutic interventions. I'm full of significant hope for patients and confidence with mantle cell lymphoma and how they're managed at this point in time. 
And believe me, when I started, all of these drugs we just talked about, most of them weren't around. Thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. That was outstanding. I really want to thank you for your outstanding presentation. And um, I, uh, we're going to take questions in just a minute. I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care Services, and then we'll go right to your questions. So for those of you, some of you are already posting questions um, online, but if you're um, trying to prepare your questions, so we should sure take as many of your questions as possible. So I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm an oncology social worker, and I'm director of education and training at Cancer Care. And Cancer Care does have um, a wide, uh, comprehensive uh, array of services for people. We are a national organization, so we do provide services through our helpline, which is 1-800-813-4673, or one can post a question or concern on our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and our services are both practical and financial assistance, as well as helping you to bridge your services, to get you to services that you may need, or to provide you with some support or, or help with addressing concerns and questions you may have. We also do have a Cancer Care for Kids program to help you to, uh, to help children and families in which there is lymphoma. Um, so they actually, there's a discussion of them about, um, about either a parent or grandparent um, or favorite uncle or aunt who may be dealing with um, mental cell lymphoma and what to say, how to handle that. Um, so we do have a lot of different services. And when in doubt, I would say go ahead and call us. Um, we do have a, a wide array of services, a very comprehensive um, for all of you. And now we have time for questions. And I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions. And, um, and Norma, will, uh, once you explain, we'll, we'll let the questions begin. We already have quite a few. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Norma. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Jason W. Your line is open. Jason, please ask your question. Jason, please ask your question. Your line is open. Oh, sorry about that. I accidentally muted the phone, and I was talking for a few seconds. Uh, my name is Jason. Uh, I'm a mantle cell lymphoma patient uh, in New York City. I actually am in a clinical trial right now, um, which includes um, reduction infusions, uh, lenalidine, and acalabrutinib. And um, on this call, I found it very interesting. I, I heard the word cure uh, a few times, which is not something I've heard or seen um, in regards to mantle cell lymphoma. So I don't know who is best to answer the question, but, you know, is it possible to cure mantle cell lymphoma? And I'm 40 years old, so I'm quite young on the mantle cell lymphoma spectrum. So, you know, is it possible to reach a state that you would say you're completely cured and live the rest of your life because from what i understand is like there's a hundred percent chance that it's going to come back it's not sort of if it comes back but when it comes back so thank you well thank you thank you jason for your question and dr call could you start by addressing that question sure i'll try um it's a great question hard to answer um you might think it'd be such an easy thing to answer but it's actually not um and the reason is uh, we can see individuals who have a recurrence after 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, longer. And so it makes it very hard to know if anyone is truly cured. Uh, one of the very first patients I ever treated with mantle cell lymphoma when I finished my training in the year 2000 he is still in remission, still in his first remission 19 or 20 years later. Is he cured? I'm not sure. 
I hope so, but it's almost like I'm afraid to use the word because I don't want to jinx him. Um, so we are certainly, we, I'm sure all three of the doctors on the call have had patients who have had these really long remissions, 10, 15 years, and they might be cured. They really might. <clears throat> it's just hard to know that with certainty for the reasons I stated. But I'd be really curious to hear Dr. Gopal's and Dr. Haberman's view on that question. Well, thank you, Dr. Gopal. Dr. Gopal, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I would agree. I think it's it's difficult to, uh, to define that. When I talk to patients, I say, well, what, what does cure really mean from a patient's perspective? It means it it uh, went away and never came back and they you know passed away in their sleep at age 98 after a full fulfilled life um you know that's that's the real clinical sort of patient uh, de- definition of of cure um we we try we you know we're we're all very hopeful and very excited about uh new options and um I, you know, I, we do have these patients with long remissions. Um, some of the uh, older strategies and still currently used where we are hopeful that we are potentially curing patients uh, is something called allogeneic transplant, where you get a stem cell transplant from somebody else. That's a, uh, you know, does come with some risk. Uh, um, but some of the early uh, data in mantle cell lymphoma, there are many patients who've had long remissions, but, you know, until they reach that age 98, uh, you know, you really, you don't know if they were really cured, but you certainly can be hopeful when you see that remissions with a new therapy tend to be longer than remissions with prior therapies. You start to get hopeful that you might have changed the natural history of mantle cell lymphoma. And I think where we're Hopeful, but very, very early data, very early, uh, is that um, maybe these things called CAR T-cells might be curing uh, a subset of patients in other lymphomas where we have a little bit more follow-up, but we don't have 10 years follow-up, or or certainly not beyond that. uh, We're hopeful that um, some of these remissions are going to last, and we don't see a lot of uh, late relapses in other lymphomas where we have more follow-up with CAR T-cells. So um, we are certainly, I would think, all hopeful that uh, we will be curing some patients, but it's a, it's a tough thing to define. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Haberman, do you wish to add to that as well? The two points I make to patients, I, I don't use the word cure, but I point out that the agents and the approaches that we have at this point in time have not been around long enough to document long, long-term remissions, so the data isn't there. Secondly, molecular studies alone at this point in time in 2020 are not adequate to define someone who's cured. Okay, excellent. So I hope that helps, Jason. I go back to your, take this information back to your treating healthcare team, and uh, and hopefully this has been helpful to you. We have another question from one of our online participants. This is for Dr. Gopal. For a current mantle cell after remission, how do you decide between BTK inhibitor only versus BTK inhibitor and another agent? That that's an excellent question, and it's frequently uh, we discuss that in our weekly lymphoma rounds, and I'm sure my colleagues talk about that uh, as well. Um, you know, the way I, I generally approach it, and I think this is going to be individualized, is what's the overall strategy that we have what we what we have when we're taking care of someone. So. Um, you can certainly the response rates or remission rates seem to be higher when you give uh, venetoclax, for example, with ibrutinib uh, versus ibrutinib alone. It appears that way with imperfect data, but it appears that it's more efficacious. But it also uh, comes with more side effects. And I think the bigger question is: is you don't know. Um, how where how you get the most mileage uh is it better to do things uh sequentially or is it better to do things together so um for example um i'm uh frequently when someone has a recurrence if i'm starting them on a btk inhibitor alone we'll monitor very closely uh and we will use the venetoclax that we add on top of it uh as a as a transition step 
to getting a CAR T cell. So we have that other card to play to try to get the disease, keep the disease under control when the BTK inhibitor starts to, things start to slip there. Um, but that's just one strategy. Um, and I think I have to admit, I don't know the right answer, um, but we have long discussions about this, uh, about which is, which is better uh, in the long run. Excellent. Does anyone want to add to that? Or? Excellent. All right. And a question now for Dr. Harriman. Regarding the four inhibitors for relapsed mental cell, which one is less tough on white cell counts? <laughs> and that's a very good question. I actually wrote the first lenalidomide protocol, and so I, I will readily admit that lenalidomide is a, does have significant cytopenias associated with it. And so I, I, I think and I'll be interested in uh, the comments of, the, of our two other speakers. Uh, ibrutinib, and, and I've had less experience with calibrutinib, but ibrutinib, uh, in my experience and in, in looking at the data, uh, it really has not it is is less has less myelosuppressive characteristics to it than, for instance, a regimen like bendamustine uh, rituximab. But I'll defer to our other two colleagues. Yeah, I I'll, sure. Um, yeah, I would agree with Dr. Haberman. Um, we don't see um, too much detrimental effect from ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. Uh, interestingly, there was um, reported at this last weekend at the ASCO meeting um, some head-to-head -head results of two BTK inhibitors in a different disease called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And then there's this, so there's this new BTK inhibitor called Xanabrutinib, which is approved for mantle cell, and it went head to head against ibrutinib in Waldenstrom's. And in general, Xanabrutinib was less toxic, easier to take, less high blood pressure, less atrial fibrillation, less treatment discontinuations, but it did have more neutropenia, meaning it affected the white blood cell count more than ibrutinib did. So there are some subtle differences between the drugs. But in general, all of these um, agents aren't too terribly hard on the healthy white blood cell population. And Dr. Gopal, do you want to add anything as well? I, I would concur. I think that the BTK inhibitors are, are a lot gentler than most agents on the white blood cells. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, there was another question from one of our online participants. Uh, uh, for Dr. Kahl, please explain the biosystemic systematic future treatment. I'm not sure I understand that question. It's biosystematic or systemic. I wonder future treatment. I wonder if there's a. I wonder if the person who submitted that could call in because I I think I need a little elaboration on that to try to answer okay. it. Okay, we'll move on to another question. And um, uh, if uh, if Roland wants to call in, that would be terrific. Um, we could take that question as a um, as a telephone question. Um, for um, so this is another question uh, for Dr. Call. After very successful treatment 12 years ago, my apparently very indolent MCL has finally returned at a very low level. Will CAR-T cell therapy be an option for treatment for me in a few years? If so, after results for other lymphomas, what do you think the efficacy is likely to be? And this is, of course, a very personal question, so I'm going to ask Dr. Kyle to address this in a general way. Um, and, of course, we will, uh, and, and please then go back to your treating healthcare team with the guidelines that have been provided by Dr. Kyle in terms of thinking this through. Sure, yeah. So Dr. Gopal touched on this in his presentation. I personally am very optimistic and very hopeful that CAR T-cell will have a, a really meaningful impact in mantle cell lymphoma. Um, there's not a lot of data available yet. We don't have five-year follow-up. We don't have hundreds of patients treated at this point, but there is one product that I think will get FDA approved this calendar year, and the data so far for that product is very encouraging. And so I think for the patient who put the question in and other patients with relapse mantle cell lymphoma, CAR T cell is about is right now 
a incredibly attractive and appealing option and I think will be commercially available very soon. Okay, excellent. Um, and does anyone want to add to that? Or? Okay. Um, and this question um, for uh, Dr. Gopal, will the vaccines being developed for COVID-19 be live, therefore precluding use by those of us with compromised immune systems? Again, that's... Uh, gosh, you know, I will full first concede I am not a vaccine expert. Uh, um, my guess is these will probably not be live, but uh, I, I think probably the bigger question uh, is, uh, whether one will be able to mount an immune response against a vaccine uh, based on um, anti-lymphoma therapy that one might have uh, uh, received. And in fact, uh, my colleagues and I were kind of discussing this uh, before the call. Um, so, you know, I think that's really the bigger question because some of the treatments that we administer can blunt the immune response. And uh, uh, for example, we know that if one gets rituximab, then it's difficult to be effectively immunized against influenza. Uh, so, um, you know, this is the, this is the, the the one question. However, we also know that rituximab uh, maintenance. Uh, there are studies that show it improves survival uh, after initial therapy. So it's it's really uh, for mantle cell lymphoma. So it's really an open question about what the very individualized approach needs to be taken for each patient. But uh, I am not a vaccine expert, and I'm certainly not the best person to comment on that. But uh, let my colleagues comment if they have other information. Anyone else like to comment on that? Okay. Um, that's something that we actually have to uh, – I guess address in future programs because indeed um, uh, we the, some of this information we don't have available at this time. For, but it's a good. I have to say these are amazing questions that are. I have to say that we are receiving online. I, I have to say they are really. Um, uh, we're all saying these are excellent questions, um, and indeed um, they are the questions of this time, and they're good questions to ask. Some of them we may not have the. Absolute answers to just because they are so, so, so uh, a little bit ahead of the where we are right now. So thank you, Aldo, for doing asking these great questions. Um, so question now, um, and this one again, uh, is, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Haberman if you can address this. Curious whether or not Canadians have access to treatment or trials in the USA through their Canadian Cancer Center for Refractory MCL. I think that's a very good question. I, I've actually been, I actually chaired a site visit of the uh, British Columbia Cancer Agency, uh, uh, one of their last site visit for one of their big grants. And so I think I can confidently say that in many of the provinces, uh, the, the, the Canadians do have access to different new drugs. The Certainly the process there is different. Um, but they're on both sides of the country. There are some very key institutions and key investigators and key institutions who are very involved in international trials, which then also provide access to the to to study drugs and patients on study. Uh, there then are different approval processes in uh, in all different countries. So we have. The UK on today, Switzerland, Canada, and so forth, and uh, so the regulatory bodies function very differently in different countries, and and function very differently in allowing off-label use of different drugs once they are approved for one indication. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and a question for Dr. Carl. Um, if an otherwise very healthy patient, 67, had lenalidomide plus rituxan for first line, can they go to chemotherapy as a second line treatment? Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. Um, and uh, do you want to add anything to that? Anyone want to add anything to that or? Yeah, there's, there's I, no I would question. agree. As long as the blood okay. counts, are, will tolerate it. Um, 
it depends upon what the white count, platelet count, and so forth are um, after the uh, lenalidomide and rituximab regimen. Okay. And uh, this question for Dr. Gopal, what is the status of research regarding stem cell transplants for patients who are MRD negative after receiving rituxan bendamustine? Well, you know, that exact question is being addressed in uh, a multi-center cooperative group trial uh, looking at folks who are MRD negative and then asking the question whether there is an added benefit of doing transplant or not. So I think that's really an open question at this point. We do know that at least by the current measures of MRD, uh, those who are negative uh, tend to do better no matter what you do, um, and uh, the, 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 it's an open question whether or not uh, doing transplant in that setting is uh, beneficial. So, so we actually that's, don't know the answer, but uh, we will know the answer. I should say that audience is kind of aware of it. This is really amazing, these questions, aren't they? They kind of, <laughs> I have to say this, we've done this program a number of times, but um, I have to say that this, our participants are really asking um, questions that our, our researchers are asking as well. So it's really kind of amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, and, and I want to thank the speakers as well as our participants. And um, and this will probably be the last question for Dr. Haberman. I was diagnosed in 2014 and have long-term neutropenia and mild anemia. What can I do to improve this? It's a very complicated question, and it's dependent upon um, how you're actually being treated. So, for instance, rituximab can cause long-term neutropenia. Usually it's mild. Uh, the uh, When you have the combination of anemia and neutropenia, then I'm the question comes what what were the treatments before and their impact on the bone marrow uh lastly it's imperative to know that there is or is not involvement of mantle cell lymphoma in the bone marrow and so as far as what can be done it's a mostly a disease management situation uh as far as diet or other things uh those those will not have a significant impact on neutropenia and anemia. And with anemia, it's also important to make sure that there aren't other causes such as a myelodysplastic syndrome or uh, an iron deficiency where simply iron could uh, improve the situation tremendously. But I'd be interested in the comments of others on this. Uh, I, I agree, Tom. Complicated um, situation that you'd really have to investigate in an individual patient. The reason sometimes it's just sort of a, a, a bone marrow that's been, I'll use the word, damaged a bit by the prior treatments and it doesn't bounce back all the way and the bone marrow just can't produce the blood cells at the same rate it used to and so patients live with these chronically mildly low blood counts. Uh, often that improves with time. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, in those situations, we hope that the counts aren't so severely depressed that they create clinical problems, and, and that's the, really the key. But, of course, one must look for other etiologies, as you described. Excellent. I actually want to thank our speakers. You've really been outstanding. And I also want to thank our participants for really um, asking such really great questions. And we hope you'll take this information back to treating healthcare team. Um, that you've either you've asked a question, you've heard somebody else's question, you have a question to ask. In any of these scenarios, please go back to your treating healthcare team because they actually know you the best and they know, you know, everything about you um, so that you can run your this information past them. I do know that there are many of you who still are in queue who have questions, so I just want to address this as well. Um, we um, are partnering with many other organizations with a number of lymphoma organizations, and so I definitely would recommend that um, in addition that in addition to speaking to your healthcare team, that you also um, uh, want to, I know many of you like to get information from credible resources, which means credible institutions um, that actually um, have 
experts like the speakers we have today reviewing the information so that it would be information that is current as of this month and year. That's very important. Um, but I would suggest organizations like the Lymphoma Research Foundation, which is a wonderful organization and has very up-to-date information on mental cell lymphoma for you all. Um, and for those of you who wish to pursue getting information, some of the support services from Cancer Care, um, please feel free to contact Cancer Care for any of the practical or financial assistance or for any of the informational kinds of or supportive help from our oncology social workers, um, our support groups, please feel free to contact us. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you are alone in helping with mantle cell lymphoma or any type of lymphoma or any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support, and we are all here to help you, starting with your healthcare team and then branching out to other organizations that are credible and that have expert people to help you. So um, with that being said, um, please know that you can contact your healthcare team and you can contact, of course, Cancer Care and other organizations that we've mentioned. Now, you're going to get an evaluation at the end of today's program, and the evaluation, it's true, we always like to get your feedback, but in addition to the evaluation, we also include any resource we mentioned during the program today, as well as resources that we may have not mentioned, but that you've received from us that are credible places to get information. But again, everything has to be run past your healthcare team. That's most important. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.